Good evening, world. This is the podcast Sassafras, and your host is Lord Cattell. Welcome back. We have made it all the way to Chapter 7 in Mitch Horowitz's The Miracle Club. Yesterday, we went over the Golden Rule and how it applies. Not only how it applies, but we really took a more in-depth look at the Golden Rule and its implications for how we interact with other people from our personal perspective. It was really, really intriguing. Let's see if I can go find it again. Oh, there it is. Your thoughts of others are registered in your subconscious mind through the principle of auto-suggestion, Hill wrote thereby building your own character in exact duplicate. Hence, you must think of others as you wish them to think of you. Which can be problematic for a lot of people, right? We get... And we, like Mitch uh, explained yesterday, he's failed at that several times. It's not easy to do. Um, because we are reactionary. We tend to want to give back as good as we get. And we went through much more on the golden rule and um, basically do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, Really, really went in depth with it yesterday, so I'm not going to go too much into that today because we did that yesterday. And we are going to start fresh with chapter 7, which is the working class mystic, an example of James Allen. But I do like to highlight uh, where we left off at, so that's why I brought it up again. And it can't uh, can't be repeated enough, that golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's so freaking simple. And yet here we are. So, I will repeat it, and I will repeat it, and I will repeat it. And we're just going to go ahead and dive right in today. Working Class Mystic. Before I do that, of course, my shout out to the restaurant industry. All my guys and gals out there in Foodland, thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for all you're still going through. Thank you for showing up to work. And oftentimes now doing the work of two or three. Sad reality out there right now. So if you're feeling overwhelmed and too stressed out and you feel like it's too much, please, 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 please don't do something you can't take back. You deserve to be here. It's a bad chapter, not a bad life. Bad days don't last forever. They don't. Don't quit. Don't quit. Alright. Working class mystic. So. How can we put these ideas into action? 
In the epigraph of this book, I quoted Emerson saying that metaphysics must be biography. The best example I know of metaphysical principle as biography appears in the life of early 20th century British writer and New Thought devotee, James Allen. If Allen's name is unfamiliar, you probably know his short meditative work, As a Man Thinketh, which has been read by millions and has shaped the culture of self-help since it appeared in 1903. Allen epitomized the dimensions of power to me, the dimensions and power of thought to transform a life. He joined New Thought ambitions to social idealism as a supporter of labor rights, an early advocate for the humane treatment of animals and vegetarianism, a Christian ethicist, yeah, ethicist, and a mystic seeker. Allen's life was his greatest creation. His literary career was short, ranging roughly from the publication of his first book in 1901 to his death in 1912. Yet in those 11 years, Allen completed 19 books, some of them published posthumously. In the same year that he produced As a Man Thinketh, 1903, Allen put out another book, less known but equally powerful in scope and practicality titled All These Things Added. In All These Things Added, he prescribed a formula of day-to-day -day living intended to bring personal fulfillment and higher realization. Like the physician teacher I wrote about in the previous chapter, Alan based his outlook on Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. <clears throat> The book captured Allen's struggle to live in the awareness that we experience a broadened, more bountiful existence when we attempt to serve something higher than ourselves, when we strive to create something, a work of writing, an invention, a new law, a reversal of injustice, that is lasting, beneficial, serviceable, and equal to the claims made for it. In the book's most memorable passage, Allen reflects on the feeding habits of birds and how they resemble the consumptive patterns of human beings. He's re he recalls his experience of feeding birds and noticing that the more food he gave them, he once tossed a full loaf of bread, the more frenzied their behavior. It is not scarcity that produces competition, he concludes. It is abundance. I'm not sure that his point is entirely right. Scarcity produces its own form of ruthlessness and even horror, a truth seen in conflicts around the world and explored with unflinching honesty in Cormac, McCar Cormac McCarthy's novel The Road. But Allen's greater point, and the lesson I take from his observation, is that abundance doesn't sate hunger or competition. Abundance, in its grossest form, when not wed to labor, tends to leave us unsatisfied, petty, grasping, and covetous. It's an interesting observation. 
I have visited and spoken at leisure villages for wealthy and well-off retirees and been shocked to discover that, amid material profusion and hours of downtime, there often prevails an atmosphere of sniping and finickiness, as among spoiled children. The noblest aspects of human nature emerge when the individual is striving towards something. When the thing striven for is attained, however, such as a comfortable and prosperous old age, the human mind often redirects its attention onto the smallest and most fleeting details of quotidian life. Abundance can be a kind of slavery insofar as it feeds and foments, excuse me, foments, what might be called it, the lowest self within us that feeds on habit, consumption, and routine. James Allen, by contrast, was compelled to struggle most of his life, but that struggle never deformed him. The decisive factor in his life, the thing that kept him from lapsing into pettiness or malaise, was that he saw life's upward hill not as a path toward comfort, but toward refinement. He believed that human growth, if it occurred at all, emerged from an ever-advancing pursuit of inner repose, simplicity of habit, and reduction of wants. The historical details of Allen's life demonstrate this. Okay, so let's hold on. Let's go over that real quick. And I do agree with him. And I'm not quite sure it can be so easily um, just blamed on uh, the id or base. Um, I think that's Freudian, who basically broke the um, the mind into three distinct personalities. And one was the ego, the super ego, and the id. Though I'm not sure who it actually was. But, okay. I don't know about this. The point he's making, not necessarily abundance. You can also have this in a lack, for, lack of abundance. You can have this in an overabundance. But without a proper aim, without something fulfilling to fill our time with. Our boredom will naturally fill that time with something else, whether we want it to or not. We find ourselves, you know, glancing over at the neighbors or, hey, did you hear what happened to Kathy down the street and get involved in gossip? Um, you know, it's... That impulse is what gets us progressing as humanity. We get bored. Boredom is a result of um, lack of stimuli, so we start looking around for stimuli. Period. Um, which retirement can actually be really rough on people after an entire lifetime of, you know, getting up and doing a certain thing for a certain amount. That's 40 years of repetition that you're now trying to figure out what the hell else that you're going to do with your day. I say the first year is the roughest. But solid point, although I wouldn't I wouldn't just go with psychological concept. We we need to be striving for something. That's why you also see so many retirees take up a hobby. 
It's never going to get sold. It's never going to get seen. It's never going to get... Probably leave their property. You know, maybe they travel. Hold on a second. Maybe they take a woodworking... Sorry. Ah, sneeze. Maybe they, you know... Um, start needlework, knitting, crocheting, all sorts, all these, you know, weird random things that you never had the time for because they take up an extraordinary amount, extraordinary amount of time, you now have the time for. So they do that to fill their hands, to give them something to do, something to look forward to. Alright. It's just, that's how we're built. That's our, our, our underlying programming. Boredom is a part of our underlying programming. When we're, we don't have something to fill or occupy our time, we go find something to fill or occupy our time. That's how we get, you know, motivation to progress forward. Alright, so continuing. Metaphysics the hard way. James Allen was born on November 28, 1864, to a working-class family in the industrial town of Leicester in central England. His mother, Martha, could neither read nor write. She signed her marriage certificate with an X. Her father, William, was the proprietor of a knitting factory. The eldest of three brothers, James was bookish and mild, doted upon by his father, who treasured learning and reading. He vowed to make young Jim into a scholar. Sorry, where was I? Treasure the okay. Dead upon by his father who treasured learning and reading. He vowed to make young Jim into a scholar. When James turned fifteen, Central England's textile industry experienced a severe slump, and William lost his business. In 1879, he pulled together his savings and traveled alone to America, hoping to find work, reestablish himself, and then bring over the rest of the family. But on the brink of the Christmas season, the unthinkable occurred. Two days after William reached New York City, news returned home that he had been killed, the victim of a murder robbery. William's body, its pockets picked over, lay in a city hospital. The Allen family faced economic disaster. James, the studious teen, was forced to leave school and find work locally as a factory framework knitter to support his mother and two brothers. He sometimes put in 15-hour days. The job consumed him for nine years. Even amid the strains of factory life, however, James retained his father's love for literature, and whenever possible, he read scripture, Shakespeare, Western translations of Buddhism, and early tracts on vegetarianism and animal rights. His interest in the ethical treatment of animals grew from his studies of karma and Buddhism. Alan retained the self-possessed, serious bearing that his father had sought to cultivate in him. When his workmates went out drinking or caught up on sleep, Alan studied and read two to three hours a day. Co-workers called him the saint and the parson, or priest. 
Around 1889, Allen found new employment in London as a private secretary and stationer. Presumably friendlier vocations to the genteel, self-educated band than factory work. The move to London and the access it gave him to lending libraries and bookstores marked a turning point in his life. Over the next decade, Allen cultivated an interest in the world's spiritual philosophies, poring over the work, works of John Milton, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman, and translations of the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, and the sayings of Buddha. Later on, he grew interested in America's burgeoning new thought culture through the work of Ralph Waldo Trine, Christian D. Larson, and Orison Sweat Marden. He developed a personal philosophy that closely aligned with new thought. The mind, as Alan saw it, is an organ through which God and man coalesce. As such, thoughts determine destiny. Also in London, he met his wife and intellectual partner, Lily Oram. They wed in 1895, and the following year gave birth to a daughter, Nora, their only child. By 1898, Allen discovered an outlet for his spiritual and social interests when he began writing for the magazine The Herald of the Golden Age. The journal was an early voice for vegetarianism, metaphysics, social reform, and practical spirituality. His writing for The Herald of the Golden Age commenced a period of intense creative activity. By 1901, his ideas bursting from years of study, he published his first book of spiritual philosophy, From Poverty to Power. The work extolled the creative agencies of thought, placing an equal emphasis on Christian-based ethics and new thought motivation. In 1902, Allen launched his own spiritual magazine, The Light of Reason, later renamed The Epoch. With 1903 came Allen's classic, As a Man Thinketh. Although he considered the short work something of a minor effort, Lily admired it as an encapsulation of her husband's philosophy of self-help, ethical living, and mind-power metaphysics. Loosely based on Proverbs 23.7, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The slender volume eventually became read around the world, and brought Allen posthumous fame as one of the pioneering figures of modern inspirational thought. There is no question in my mind that Allen is writing about himself in this passage, excuse me, in this passage from As a Man Thinketh. Here is a youth hard-pressed by poverty and labor, confined long hours in an unhealthy workshop, unschooled, and lacking all the arts of refinement. But he dreams of better things. He thinks of intelligence, of refinement, of grace and beauty. He conceives of, mentally builds up, an ideal condition of life. Vision of wider liberty and a larger scope takes possession of him. 
unrest urges him to action, and he utilizes all his spare time and means, small though they are, to the development of his latent powers and resources. Very soon so altered has his mind become that the workshop can no longer hold him. As with many of Alan's works, As a Man Thinketh was launched quietly, and its full impact was not felt until years after his death. Nonetheless, it won the fledgling author sufficient readership so that he was soon able to quit secretarial work and dedicate himself fully to writing and editing. In the early 1900s, the family moved to the southern English coastal town Ilfracombe, where he spent the rest of his life. He produced books at a remarkable pace, often more than one a year. With Lily as his collaborator, Allen hosted discussion groups on metaphysical themes, continued publishing The Epoch, and spent long periods in nature, taking early morning walks and exploring the coastal highlands. He adopted a meticulous routine of meditating, writing, gardening, and walking. His work habits never flagged. Thoroughness is genius, he wrote. Friends sensed that he was living out the simple, ascetic ideal of one of his heroes, Leo Tolstoy. For all the vigor of his output, Alan suffered fragile health. Lily wrote of her husband growing ill in late 1911. On January 24, 1912, Alan died at home in Ilfracombe at age 47, probably of tuberculosis. His body was cremated. Lily continued to publish his remaining manuscripts to work on her own books, and to edit and publish the epoch. She also founded a new thought-oriented society, the Union of Right Thinking. She died in 1952. Nora, a spiritualist and later a devout Roman Catholic, died in 1976. The Legacy of James Allen is that the British contemplative established a practical philosophy of personal achievement set within a excuse me, set within an ethical and religious framework. Allen believed in precise, simple values of thrift, reliability, hard work, keeping one's word, respect of one's neighbor and employer, and a deeply held belief in the individual's power to radically alter his circumstances through proper exercise of thought. In 1913, Lily Allen summarized her husband's mission in a preface to one of his posthumously published manuscripts, Foundation Stones to Happiness and Success. He never wrote theories, she remarks, or for the sake of writing, but he wrote when he had a message and it became a message only when he had lifted it out in his own life.
and knew that it was good. Thus, he wrote facts, which he had proven by practice. So that's an interesting perspective, and I just... There wasn't really much for me to intercede here, because this was just a... Basically, a biography of James Allen's life. And I didn't want to really interrupt on that at all. I learned something new today. I had no idea who James Allen was. I've heard of As a Man Thinketh, but I had no idea who's, who it was that wrote it. It's an interesting history. And I like that little bit at the end where she makes a, makes it a point to um, to add into one of his books that he never wrote theories. He only wrote messages, and it didn't become a message until he had proved it through practice. So you can go back and look at all of James Allen's works and know that none of them were written until they were things until they were proven to be accurate by him. Then he wrote it down in a book. He used his own life as his experimental bubble. Very sad that he died so early. It would have been interesting to see where he would have, uh, where he would have continued on to if he had not fallen ill. So, we're going to leave off there today. Um... Like I said, I didn't want to, I don't really need nor want to intercede anywhere in there. That is his biography, what he came to his own conclusions. Um, and this was just basically context for the person rather than any discussion over technique, tactic, opinion, and whatnot. So that's an interesting little background. So there's there's some book homework for you if you feel up to it. As a Man Thinketh is not very large. It's a very, very slim book. You could probably get through that in an afternoon. Or less. But it is interesting to go back and read the earlier works and then see just how the thought process has evolved with new understandings, new experiments, new scientific discoveries as time has progressed to see the why of how these things work. And they only knew that it worked way back then. They knew that it worked. They didn't have any of the experiments to back up the why of what, why it works. And it's so interesting to see these guys get proven right. Good grief. Hold on a second. One of, one of these times I will remember to do that. Um, it's just it's really interesting to see these guys get proven right and go back and read some of their theories, their treatises, their, their, their thoughts, their opinions on how the mind works, how people interact with each other. And a lot of it really hasn't changed. We've just discovered more. 
but the basics are still there. What you focus on becomes your reality. Alright. Um, that thoughts do really have the power to shape your reality and what you see in your reality. Uh, the golden rule. That still really hasn't changed since it was first interpreted or understood, you know, now centuries ago. So it's really interesting to see all the new things that prop up or crop up out of it and just the baseline ancient knowledge that has survived to this time and still is useful now as it was back then. That's a whole nother discussion. How ancient teachings and understandings can still be so relevant today. That's a whole nother discussion thread in and of itself. So we'll come back tomorrow at an experiment in greatness. They was just basically Mr. Allen's um, biography background. And we will continue more on James Allen. I believe. Let's see. No, tomorrow's going to be more on the inspiration James Allen gave to Mr. Mitch Harwitz. So we are going to go over that to tomorrow. So go ahead and do a little wiggle and get in a little stretch and we will do our two minute brain break. Woohoo! Alrighty. Go ahead and close your eyes. And let's take a nice, slow, deep breath in. And let it back out. And let's take another nice, slow, deep breath in. And let it back out. And just let your awareness settle into the space. And breathe. you're sitting on, just appreciate whatever it is, the bed, the chair, the floor, just show some appreciation to whatever it is you're sitting on, and as you're increasing your focus just so slightly on what it is you're sitting on, just feel yourself sink deeper 
into the surface. Just a little deeper. Just a little deeper. And as you sink deeper, you just feel all the chores and responsibilities of the day just fall off your shoulders. All your worries and fears just, just slowly drain out of your head. Like someone pulled a plug and it's just a falling, falling, falling down, down, down. And just enjoy this super relaxed state. So that's an interesting bit of history. Wasn't expecting to go in that direction today. Not complaining, though. I love learning new things. Alright, guys. We're going to come back tomorrow and we're going to discuss more on Mr. Allen and the... Well, I don't want to put this. Not the inspiration. The foundation? Foundation he gave to the New Thought Movement and the inspiration that Mr. Mitch Horowitz gets from Mr. James Allen and his life. So, thank you for listening, thank you for being here, thank you for participating, and thank you so much for your patience. Have a fantastic rest of your evening. This is the podcast, Sassafras. Good night. <laughs>